0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines.
1: How you doing, Dave? I'm doing well. Uh, Getting ready for what we think will be a school year on Monday, (laughs) but... um... Uh, change changes by the minute, uh, or the hour, or the day. I won't get into details for for those of you who uh, work at the same college that I do. Uh, we've had an interesting week, but uh, we move forward, and our name is Providence. So we always trust in an all powerful God. So uh, that's yeah, big, that's
0: big the guy. only way to make it through 2020. i was sending out notes to some of my students with my provisional plans for the semester, and I have in bold as all things are in 2020, this is subject to change, right? Exactly. You always have that language on your syllabus, you know, just sort of reserving the right to make changes. But you feel the burden of that, especially this coming year. I mean, there's just, everything is is subject to change. It's a good reminder that we are not in charge and that God is. Yes. Well, so the big political headline, obviously, this week was Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris as his Ticket mate, vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, uh, but we've talked about that already. And so, what we thought we would do, rather than delve further into that debate, and we'll focus on the conventions uh, the next two weeks anyway, was to take a step back and look at the future of conservatism. Now, since the end of June, the American Conservative magazine has been publishing periodic essays on their website in a symposium on American conservatism. And they're up to about 22 pieces to date from writers that represent a range of conservative positions. And so we're gonna use those pieces and some classic conservative texts to talk about the future of the conservative movement in this populist Trump era and beyond. Um, And the inspiration for that symposium and also for our discussion is a book written over 50 years ago that was edited by Frank Meyer, often called the intellectual godfather of the modern conservative movement, one of the people that put together the coalition that eventually led to political successes like the election of Ronald Reagan, but also tried to give a a coherent philosophical underpinning to that conservative movement. So he edited this book called What Is Conservatism published in 1964. And that was kind of the backdrop for this series of essays in the American conservative. And so what we thought we would do was actually start there. That'll be our required reading. We're gonna start with our required reading, flip the script, sorry about that. For those of you creatures of habit, good conservative creatures of habit, we're gonna flip the script here, let Dave lead off with the required reading, and then allow that to interact with our headlines, which will be reflections on those American conservative pieces. So with that, Dave, what have you got for us?
1: Or so putting them to sleep first and then waking people up with the headlines thereafter. We'll wake That's. them up later. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Sounds good. All right. Yep. I can do this. So, um, I love Meyer. I I love uh, I love his writing style. I love what he was after. I I I think he was very um, just very interesting person because uh, he was someone uh, very active within the broader conservative libertarian movement. But also you can tell uh, from reading him um, that he had an amazing gift um, to understand this kind of difficult and complex world that we live in and our place within it. But what I want to do before getting to his 1964 essay, uh, what is conservatism, with the book that he edited, is I want I want to first um, kind of I think give you Meyer's metaphysics uh, that um, he delivers to us in, in a later book uh, written in, in 1968 in a chapter of that book uh, titled Western Civilization, uh, The Problem of Freedom. So I want to start there and kind of lay out how Meyer uh, sees the world. And we'll have the link to this really, really terrific essay uh, on our site. And then I'll go to the, uh, the questions he brings up in what what is conservatism before we go on to the headlines and, and kind of more contemporary responses you, to it.
0: You really are serious about putting everyone to sleep.
1: I am. Yes, exactly. We're going to start off metaphysical and then go from there. Let's so, do it. So the claim that Meyer makes at the beginning of this essay, Western Civilization, the Problem of Freedom, is that of all the civilizations in world history, Western civilization is unique. So why is Western civilization unique? The answer is that any civilizational order, he argues, derives from the way in which it organizes the life and outlook of the individual persons who compose it in their relations to the universe in which they live. So I'll say that again. All civilizational orders derive from the way they organize the life and outlook of individual persons who compose that civilization in their relations to the universe in which they live. So he says at the beginning of the essay that for the first 2,500 years of recorded history, all men lived in what he called cosmological unities. And what he means by this phrase, a cosmological unity, where there's no difference between the temporal world and the transcendent world, that, that everyone's existence is subsumed, every individual's existence is subsumed um, by a, a declaration of truth that kind of penetrates everything for, for that person. Um, up until... And this is where the West becomes unique, up until the appearance of two new civilizations, um, the Greeks of classical civilization and the Jews of Syriac civilization. He says that these two civilizations shattered the unity, the cosmological unity of the combining of the historic world and the cosmic world. They burst asunder the unity of what ought to be and what is. And it faced individual men for the first time with the necessity of a deep-going moral choice. Meyer goes on to say, in a word, it destroyed the unity of what is done by human beings and what they should do to reach the heights their nature opens to them. So what he's suggesting here, and for those of you who have studied political philosophy with Professor I, you always hear us mention kind of the transcendent world of the ought and the imminent world of the is, of the eternal and the historical. What Meyer is arguing here is that the reason why we can think about that dichotomy, that the way that we do in the West is because of the influence of Judeo-Christianity on the one hand uh, and Greek philosophy on the other hand. Where do we get these two parts of the world from the Judaic prophetic experience? Well here we have the notion, right, that mankind can be an individual, like a covenantal, but also an individual inheritor of prophecy, right? So we can hear the word of God and that word of God can move us uh, to understand uh, where, where God is uh, transcendently and where we are in the world that is. And, and we feel that difference between where we are and where he is and what we ought to be doing. And, and if you go further in the Judeo-Christian tradition, Christ coming into the world is the word made flesh, is the transcendent made imminent that, that ties the whole human experience together. Well, similarly, Meyer argues that in Greek philosophy, the fact that the individual human being through Uh, Socrates uh, or Plato's coverage of Socrates is able to be a pursuer of wisdom or truth by using uh, their reason to reflect upon the world all of a sudden opens up to individual man a pathway uh, to the transcendent from his imminent uh, placing. So why is this all important to Meyer? For Meyer not only is Western civilization unique But Western civilization is correct uh, or has been correct or has opened up to mankind the greatest prospect for all humanity. To be able to live uh, in uh, this world of the imminent but to have an ability to access the transcendent uh, leads to states of human, human flourishing that would not exist had we not had that opportunity. So the, the great benefit that we have as human beings living in Western civilization is we have access to, to this way of looking at the world. The great problem is that we also have access to looking at this world. Why is it a great problem? Well, here Meyer would point to uh, the 20th century experience, and not just simply the 20th century experience, there have been other experiences of, of this utopian desire of of mankind living within the imminent world to bring heaven down to earth uh, to go back to uh, this cosmological unity that once pervaded all civilizations and and he talks about that as as being a great danger because in order to create that cosmological unity you have to tyrannize over uh, the the imminent world so that's kind of one danger being placed in this position as we are the other danger that we also see uh, in, in Western civilization, Western history, is to deny uh, the possibility whatsoever uh, of, of the transcendent. Uh, in Machiavelli's words in Chapter 15 of The Prince, right to leave um, imagined republics and principalities behind uh, and to simply just focus on the imminent uh, and to do what you will uh, in this world of imminence. So two great dangers, a, a danger towards utopianism, Uh, by trying to bridge the imminent uh, and the transcendent uh, or uh, the anarchic um, or or pathway to nihilism uh, in which you just set aside uh, a transcendent reality. Have I lost you or put you to sleep yet, Matt?
0: No, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. Uh, No, this is, I think this is helpful. I think, you know, we have to appreciate that the ancient civilizations that he's looking at kind of the landscape, the story they're telling is the the gods have established the world that you live in. That is the world as it therefore must be as it ought to be. And so you're not really in a position to critique that it's not proper to critique that uh, you just submit to that and you continue down that path indefinitely until your neighbor conquers you and you've got new gods, a new story that you've got to adopt. But with the, emergence of biblical worldview, first in the Old Testament scriptures and then more fully with the New Testament as well, we're put in this difficult position of having to sort out the is and the ought because we recognize, and obviously this is right there at the very beginning of Genesis, that a world that began very good is now a fallen world. And yet there's still a call to holiness, there's still a righteousness that's demanded, but we don't see that. And the world around us is an is that's very far removed from the ought. And yet, to complicate it further, there's a promise at the end of Revelation that there will be an actual realization of that ought, but it won't be one that we bring about. It won't be the result of human political action And so we have to live with this uneasy tension between our knowledge of the flaws and faults of this world and our expectation of a better world without, just as you're saying, throw our hands up and say, forget about that world to come. We'll just live beastly lives as base creatures in a fallen world. Or no, we demand that world to come now and therefore, we're going to force everybody to live according to our vision of what that world
1: would look like. What Myers says is that there's no solution, um, uh, to there's no earthly solution uh, to these temptations being there. Well, well why? Um, because uh, order is necessary uh, to the West, but as is freedom necessary to the West, and and we tend to want to gravitate toward one or another and discard the other that we don't like uh, and this this creates an imbalance uh, in in our political outlook and our theological outlook and so on so anyway near the end of this essay and this is very very interesting for us he references in particular the American political experience what is it that's unique about uh, the American Founding Fathers, and and we've seen this and we've talked about this in the show on multiple occasions, uh, what they're after uh, in both the Declaration of Independence and a government system that frames Uh, our idea of justice is there after ordered liberty, right? So there is certainly, and we see this in the Federalist Papers, we see this in many founding documents, uh, there are clear declarations of of moral principles, uh, of moral rightness, of justice, et cetera. Um, And yet there's an allowance for people, right, to, make choices, to consent to how they're governed, etc. So uh, for Meyer, the founders in particular would be um, I think an exemplar uh, of a a group uh, that brought into being a regime that at its best probably best um, enables these tensions to coexist uh, without moving in one direction or another. However, there will always be that utopian temptation. And I think certainly we see that also in American history in particular, in the temptations that we've fallen prey to uh, after the Civil War and in the rise of progressivism. So um, I I think that, um, unless you want to say more, Matt, I I think that sets up uh, Myers uh, or or editing of a book titled, What is Conservatism? Um, Nicely, uh, because it kind of sets the stage for what what is conservatism going to be in the middle of the 20th century? Meyer, in in the first chapter of this book, Freedom, Tradition, and Conservatism, will identify uh, the uto- utopian temptation as collectivist liberalism. Uh, we could also call it uh, progressivism. Uh, the, the idea, uh, really, I, I believe, that, um, that we do not... Um, to use Herbert Crowley's uh, famous progressives uh, idea, we, we have not uh, fulfilled the meaning of America or of democracy uh, unless we've been able to actualize equality through collectivist liberalism. So that's, that's the driving force behind American politics. Uh, latter half of the 19th century, uh, first half of the 20th century, a a type of politics uh, that Meyer says by the 1950s has has been disproven intellectually, but that is uh, ironically very powerful uh, in terms of its hold upon uh, the Democratic and Republican Party. Broadly conservative thinkers have seen collectivist liberalism or progressivism for what it is, and have responded to it uh, with uh, a way of thinking about the world, uh, harks back uh, to the founding, uh, harks back uh, to the embrace uh, of of the desire for order on one hand, or the human um, gravitation towards order on one hand and human gravitation towards liberty on the other. And and I think he, he, he kind of suggests here that this, Conservative movement is a good movement because it, it abstracts from the corpus of Western belief in its stress upon freedom and upon the innate importance of the individual person, what we may call a libertarian position, and those who drawing upon the same source stress value and virtue and order, what we may call the traditionalist position. So let me back up there and, and restate what I think he's arguing here. Conservatism at its intellectual height in the 20th century is on the mark to the degree that it rightly understands the human need for order and the human need for freedom and has within its kind of collected group of intellectuals, some who are going to make the case more in the direction of freedom and some who are going to make the case more in the direction of virtue and order. But as you see, Matt, that will tend to fall
0: apart. Well, of course, the challenge is having individuals who hold those positions dear and seeing others who don't value that first principle that they consider the most valuable, um, dissenting from that position, the tendency is to be critical and, and to uh, attack, right? And to argue, well, we can't make common cause with this group because they don't appreciate the importance of virtue, or we can't make a common cause with this group because they they don't appreciate the importance of freedom. And so I think what he's trying to do is to speak to both those groups and say, wait a second, understand your own position better. And you might find you have more in common than you realize with those that could be your partners, but sometimes feel like
1: your enemies. Exactly, and, and I think that this this problem is exacerbated by the fact that, as he'll state later on in the essay, that conservatives are are having to fight an intellectual war with collectivist liberals and in in fighting that war, they have to kind of shift gears they have to become uh, more militant uh, in uh, their advocacy for conservatism and and they're rather than, he uses the word, rather than um, being enabled to be natural conservatives who kind of naturally defend this corpus of Western belief, they've got to ardently defend it. And when they ardently defend it, trying to restore it, they tend to emphasize uh, one of the two tensions to a greater degree. So the libertarian under attack um, in the middle of the 20th century is going to go that much further in the defense of individual freedom and be that much more willing to kind of set aside the importance of, of virtue and order in fighting their progressive foe. And, and likewise, if you're um, someone who claims that what's essential to that Western corpus of belief um, is is the order and the virtuous activity that goes along with it. So the more ramped up we are, the less likely that we are to see that other part of the tension that's essential to the whole Western picture.
0: I think he's got an important historical insight here, which I think in the pieces that we're gonna look at a little bit later on, people are arguing that we are in the same historical context, that to just hold on to the tradition right now is to hold on to a revolution. A, A person whose natural disposition is conservative is is holding on to things has to find a way to respond to things that ought not to be held on to
1: yeah and this i think um leads us to uh, the next uh, concept that he forwards at the beginning of this book right he's he's writing the opening chapter he says, this is our situation. And I think what's kind of interesting, as you mentioned, Matt, is he's saying this is our situation in 1964. Well, this is our situation in 2020 as well. So what is, what is um, Meyer's remedy? What, what is he going to offer or suggest is going to be offered in this edited book? So he writes, What is required of us is a conscious conservatism. What's required of us is a conscious conservatism, a clearly principled restatement in new circumstances of philosophical and political truth. So he's saying that's true in 1964. I think we could say very much if we agree with Meyer that that's true in in 2020. This conscious conservatism cannot be a simple piety, although in a deep sense it must have piety toward the constitution of being, Nevertheless, in its consciousness, it necessarily reflects a reaction to the rude break the revolution, progressive, collectivist, liberal revolution, has made in the continuity of human wisdom. It is called forth by a sense of the loss which that cutting off has created. It cannot now be identical with the natural conservatism towards which it yearns. The world in which it exists is a revolutionary world. To accept that, to conserve that, would be to accept and conserve the very denial of men's long-developed understanding, the very destruction of achieved truth, which are the essence of the revolution. Nor can the conscious conservatism required of us appeal simply and uncomplicatedly to the past. The past has had many aspects all held in measured suspension, but the revolution has destroyed that suspension, that tradition. The delicate fabric can never be recreated in the identical form. Its integral character has been destroyed. I'll end with this. The conscious conservatism of a revolutionary or post-revolutionary era faces problems inconceivable to the natural conservatism of a pre-revolutionary time. What he's going to suggest here, what I think he's suggesting here, if we're going to apply what he has to say to 2020, is yes, a conscious conservatism is required of us. A clearly principled restatement in New circumstances of philosophical and political truth is required of us, but that restatement of philosophical and political truth must take into account the very circumstances in which we live, which calls upon us, work through what's happened, uh, work through the development of collectivist liberalism right up until the present day. Uh, How has it shifted? How has it changed? And and how can we restate our principles uh, countering? Uh, that progressive revolution that's up to date and that takes into account uh, our current exigencies. Would, would you agree with that, Matt? Or? No, I think that's,
0: that's the challenge. And I think that's why there's a symposium <laughs> in yeah. 2020 that has such a range of views.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think it requires us, um, I think it also requires us to to do the following. And, and I'm interested in, in what your take is on this. Uh, I've read through the 22 pieces and if I'm understanding Meyer correctly, it also requires us to understand the revolution well. It, it requires us to understand the other well. So the other, at his time, he calls the collectivist liberal. Uh, is, is, that this, is that the same revolutionary force that we're dealing with in 2020, or is it a different um, type of liberal? Uh, because if it is, then, then our response to it and our restatement of principle uh, may have to be a little bit different and our way forward may have to be a little bit different. And, and let me just quickly, before we get to the headlines, uh, take a shot at that. I've argued in uh, most of the uh, essays that I've written in the last you know, 10 or 15 years that what I believe is, is the great danger uh, in uh, the, the latest recreation of progressive liberalism is this development to see the world along the following lines. Anything that is transcendent is indeterminate anything that is moral in content or philosophic in content the um what i would call the latest rendering of the liberal uh, will say is can't be solved it's, it's a mystery so any effort uh, to make a claim for moral or philosophical certitude about the transcendent world is rejected offhand but on the other hand the The latest recreation of the liberal suggests that everything within the imminent realm is determinate. Uh, Everything within it can be measured or counted. Uh, And at the end of the day, um, no judgment that questions simple material determinacy is correct. So I would argue that the type of liberal that we're dealing with in the 21st century is a liberal who's taken that end of history thesis to the nth degree. Uh, they've 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 taken um, uh, philosophical liberalism uh, in the direction of nihilism, uh, and they've taken economic liberalism uh, in to the reduction of all things being material, uh, and and that is a um, that's a horrible predicament for the human being. Uh, but that, that, if that's the case, I think that the conservative's charge in the 21st century would be to winsomely respond to that worldview. So uh, let's, let's see whether or not, uh, if, if I'm on the mark, whether that's happening in the headlines that, that make up uh, these essays that respond to Meyer's essay.
0: So just as a transition to our discussion of these pieces, the basic Myers position is called fusionism. And the fusionist argument is that we can take the libertarian conservative emphasis on freedom, and we can take the traditionalist conservative emphasis on virtue and order. And as we press upon those things, we find that there's some ultimate compatibility insofar as freedom to be of any value must be exercised in the context of virtue. Otherwise, it's just a beastly expression of animalistic desire. And on the other hand, the pursuit of virtue and order has to be chosen. And so actual genuine virtue can't be forced upon a person. It has to be an expression that emerges out of the heart, a desire to act in a certain way. And so Meyer essentially argues that, we can hold these two ideas together, these two groups together in some political union that might be large enough to actually accomplish political goals if we can appreciate that my love of freedom rests upon your love of virtue and your love of virtue requires my love of freedom. And so as we explore this symposium, I think there's really two questions that I think maybe help us to organize this and apply it to the present moment. First question, is fusionism still a viable intellectual and political foundation for conservatism moving forward? Is is this actual formulation still available to us? And then secondly, if it's not, what should replace it as the heart of an intellectually sound, politically viable conservative movement? So I, I, I want to assume that we have to have both those things, right, that a conservative movement, as we're describing, which is a political movement, has to be intellectually coherent. And and by the way, that that includes being moral, right? It has to be consistent with justice, ultimately. And it also has to be politically viable. There has to be a pathway forward whereby it might attract a following uh, beyond just a few people who like to write and read essays on American conservatism. So is fusionism the pathway forward? There's interesting debate within this group of 22 pieces That I think is helpful for us to to review and maybe the the two sides of this debate. So, uh, Neil Freeman, who offers a piece, probably the oldest member of the symposium, was actually involved in putting together that 1964 book and then was producer for Firing Line, Boyd Meth Buckley's PBS show, long running PBS show. So, he's been around through this whole period uh, and he argues, maybe not surprisingly, that fusionism uh, still works, but it works only if everybody is able to show, as he says, a dash of epistemological humility, um, which is perhaps none of our specialties, <laughs> but it should be a conservative specialty. Uh, that's, that's part of the conservative outlook. There's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of falls and flaws and faults in human nature. So we should be uh, epistemically humble, but maybe that's that's still personally challenging for us he argues that if we reconstruct this coalition the error perhaps of the last 50 years has been that the social conservatives haven't had as honored a place as they deserve but their commitment to the anti-abortion cause is the fundamental commitment is the most noble and important cause and that needs to be more honored and more central to a conservative movement going forward that has to get to 51, to borrow Meyer's terminology, 51%. You've Right, got to actually be able to win elections. William Ruger, uh, who is uh, with the Koch Foundation, uh, similarly argues that fusionism uh, can still work, that social conservatives although he's of the more libertarian persuasion as, as a Koch foundation person would be, that social conservatives remind us, he says that there are certain values that are foundational to a well functioning free society and that that should be taken into account in thinking about political things moving forward. I think he's trying to essentially reformulate the Meyer thesis in the language of our day. So there's, there's two people that are saying in essence fusionism not just the idea of trying to make a coalition, but the specific coalition that Meyer himself is proposing, that can still work. Although, at least in the case of Freeman, we might need to rebalance the effort, okay? So that's, that's the first position. On the other hand, there are several members of the symposium that are essentially saying, no, it didn't work. Uh, good riddance, we need something else. So Julius Klein, who is the editor of American Affairs, Uh, his piece rather subtly titled, Conservatism is a collection of losers, it doesn't have to be, Um, argues in essence that the only piece that had any lasting impact out of that collection was the one that was written by a person who said he wasn't a conservative, namely Friedrich Hayek. And so what actually happened intellectually was all the other positions lost, Uh, this fusionism didn't work, except insofar as that Hayek was successful in promoting market economies, that that's the one essay, again, ironically, the one that says it's not conservative that actually was successful. And so he concludes, what is conservatism? Who cares? Doesn't matter, Uh, it failed, in essence. Uh, David Azarod, who's now at Hillsdale College, uh, you could say is even more unsparing in his assessment of the success of the conservative movement. He says, American conservatism is fiddling, while Rome burns, uh, that it has to recognize the fact that we lost, they won, uh, and they is the, the progressive movement. Uh, progressivism, he says, is triumphant uh, and must be combated by a new right with the same tools that's used to secure the victory of progressives. And so he emphasizes the need to uh, defund the institutions of the left to establish new institutions, to use political power. He says, no one, not even the great Reagan, has succeeded in taming the administrative welfare state, much less scaling it back. The right must be comfortable wielding the levers of state power, and it should emulate the left and using them to reward friends and punish enemies within the confines of the rule of law, he adds parenthetically. So here's kind of the landscape of debate on the question of whether fusionism as a certain understanding of conservatism still is viable in our day. What do you think, Dave? Has, has fusionism political or intellectual <laughs> life
1: left in it? Well, it, it needs to have both. And, and I think um, the way that I would respond to to Crine and, and to Acerod's essays is that I, I don't think that they rightly appreciate the intellectual argument that's being made by Meyer uh, in 1964. Well, in fact, I can't see that they take on that argument at all in, in their essays. Um, but but if you don't understand the argument and you don't understand why it's necessary to understand, the, to use Meyer's terms, the corpus of Western belief, you, you wouldn't be able thereafter to understand how an understanding of that Western corpus of belief but belief. Uh, could actually um lead to the political consequences that that you desire. So um I, I think that we haven't done uh, a good job as conservatives although uh you know many a conservative believes differently here. I don't think we've done a good job of defining what conservatism is uh from from 1964 to the present day uh to um, to a society. I I think that it uh has in many ways um, taken on an easier, simpler label, but uh, it, it, there's not the depth of thought that originally went into kind of discovering the idea itself. I'll give an example. You know, one of the most beautiful books on conservatism and why one should be a conservative is, is Whitaker Chambers' Witness. But how many American college students would have any understanding of, of what Whitaker Chambers says in that essay Very few. Well, why? Because, you know, no one reads it any, any longer. No one reads that book any longer. So you might have, you know, uh, individuals who become members of turning point USA, you know, and think of themselves as, as kind of holding up the conservative um, uh, standard, but they don't even know the classics of of what it means to be a conservative. So um, I I would say that uh, in order to revitalize conservatism, we have to, um, we have to actually teach people once again what it is. And, and when you do that, it will have a good political result. It, it will, it, it, it's, it's very amenable to political majorities, I think, um, because uh, it takes into account um, the, the drive among many uh, to want to rightly embrace freedom, uh, where freedom can be ordered uh, in, in, a, in a way that's beneficial to the human being. And rightly embrace uh, virtue uh, because it's so uh, essential uh, to to right living, and, and I think that's a not only a, a right philosophical argument but a winning political argument. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think you know. For me, sort of two responses to this debate. Number one, I think that the critics and and the kind of the tone of the critics is is a dangerous one for conservatives. So we if we recognize if we recognize that that conservatism that simply wants to hold on to what we have is inadequate for our time, that what Meyer calls militant conservatism is in some sense necessary. There's a a way of doing militancy that's still consistent with using just means toward just ends. And there's a way of doing militancy that just is militant, right? That's just about power and force. And there's too much of that in my view in the emerging new right, whatever group you wanna call that, the Trumpist right, the the Flight 93, every election is is our last chance to save civilization, therefore do what's ever necessary in order to win, right? That fight back, punch back, that whole combative spirit, I think is ultimately self-destructive in that what will result from that might be short-term victories, but you end up creating a context where politics is just about power. And when politics is just about power, ultimately, right will lose, right? We, we don't have any confidence in human beings <laughs> that, that by nature, we're so good that if it's just a matter of force, then sure, force is definitely gonna lead to the triumph of justice and right. No, that, there's no reason to believe that based upon historical examples.
1: So, oh, yeah, I I I'd agree completely. And I think that in that case, both Azerod and Crying and in particular, you know, fall trapped to what I would call the Thrasymachus trap. Right. Justice is the advantage of the stronger. I mean, right. you just read what he has to say there. You know, the only vision that triumphed was Hayek's vision. So the alternatives failed. Well, just because something failed doesn't mean that it still doesn't, Uh, weight uh, our interest and and has merit and and may have uh, led to a better conclusion. So when he says, what is conservatism at this point? Who cares? You can say the same thing about a variety of different things that are good in this world. You know, what is great art? Well, who cares? You know, what is Aristotle? Who cares? But uh, we should care about these things because these things uh, will lead us uh, back and and society back in in a better direction.
0: Now, I think if on the other hand, I were to critique, the Meyer project just a little bit, I would say that at least practically the the synthesis that he attempted lent too much weight on the libertarian side. And so if you think about the argument, in essence is the political project is freedom that's, that's the common goal we're gonna to work toward. We want you social conservatives to join us in pursuing freedom because we know that the pursuit of virtue is really a private matter. It depends upon families and churches. It's not gonna be something that the government's gonna mandate. We can't force you to be good. And so therefore we will work together to maximize freedom. That's essentially the political program that comes out of Meyer. And the problem is the libertarians got off the hook When it came to defending those institutions where virtue was supposed to be inculcated. So over that 50-year period of time, what happens when the Supreme Court in Griswold versus Connecticut invents a right to privacy that by five years later turns into uh, a right of contraceptives for everybody? And three years after that, we've got Roe versus Wade. We've got no-fault divorce in there. We've got in more recent years, same-sex marriage. Libertarians are not fighting common cause with social conservatives against these things. They're on the sidelines or maybe cheering them on as expressions of what I would say is a misguided understanding of liberty. I remember, I think you talked to Charles Murray some years ago when you were down in D.C., and, and I think you asked him, if I remember correctly, well, what percentage of libertarians are pro-life, right? And what was his answer, yep.
1: 10%? And- well, I, it was interesting. He said, "Well, at the time, and I, 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 love, I love the man. I think he's great. I, I, he, he was talking about um, this coalition to, uh, of the Leave Me Alone. The coalition of, of Leave Me Alone will lead the country in the right direction. And uh, we had just gotten done a, a symposium on Washington. And I, and I said, can a, a country have a national character that's based upon the proposition Leave Me Alone? And, you know, Murray, uh, intellectually honest as, as he is, said, well, you know, I doubt that. So there's, there, there's something wrong with that coalition. So, but Murray's a, a more interesting, right, than, than the average libertarian on that front. Yes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's in that 10%, right, if yep. I recall correctly, of pro-life yep. libertarians. So my, my point is that if we say, well, virtue is a matter for the family or for the churches, the government can make it impossible or nearly impossible for the family to cultivate virtue. And in more recent years, perhaps for the church to cultivate virtue. So the libertarians of this coalition are going to have to agree that part of their job is not just to maximize freedom, but actually to create a context in which the family and these other institutions can, can survive and even flourish. And that's what I think, you know, helpfully a couple of the pieces Uh, Yuval Levine of AEI, always very thoughtful on these things, uh, talks about conservatism as being founded in a tragic view of human nature, uh, that the human person is imperfect, broken, perhaps fallen, and yet also created a divine image. And so he talks about the need to protect those institutions that are there to uh, hold us together, to encourage us toward the good when we're not naturally inclined in that direction. The family, religion, culture, politics, education, civil society, the economy, says these are what we wanna conserve and to build upon. And then Chris Buskirk, who is the editor of American Greatness, makes a similar point, but he focuses on government, family and church and says that political conservatism is about recognizing and protecting those two natural pre-political institutions, namely the family and church. So again, we're talking about reformulating this fusionist coalition in a way that puts emphasis on the thing that was de-emphasized, I think it's fair to say, in the Frank Meyer original, that the need to preserve the family and the church as those institutions through which our highest aspirations are achieved is got to be central to the political project. And and the libertarian side of the conservative movement is going to have to Recognize that and and recognize the the need for positive political action on their part toward that end
1: yeah, I, I like what you have to say about uh, that uh, yeah, critique of of Meyer that uh, perhaps there was that imbalance uh, in the movement because the progressive waves falling upon uh, America in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s 70s and '80s they continue to move things in a certain direction that would be very favorable to the the position of some within libertarian circles that uh, embrace freedom. Uh, Perhaps my favorite statement on this, uh, that in a reply to a need for a better balance is uh, this great essay uh, uh, by Irving Kristol that I use in my classes uh, called uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Nihilism. And and he says at the end of the essay, because he was very critical, of this belief that somehow uh, libertarians could defeat nihilists on their own. He says, what medicine does one prescribe for a social order that is sick because it has lost its soul? So, you know, Crystal realizes, right, that, that the issue at hand is, is actually the notion of the soul or the transcendent that's been lost as, as things have been moved further and further afield in a progressive direction.
0: All right, well, we are going to open the grade book now as we do each week. And last week, we created our own grading system with animals. Uh, don't want to miss that. Go back and <laughs> check out that episode if you, if you did miss it. Uh, and on our back to school, uh, a lot of the big sports news this week was around what's going to happen with college football. And you had this split decision where three of the Power Five conferences, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 decided to play. At least they're s- still planning to play this fall whereas the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have decided to try to play in the spring. And so obviously the question is, well, can there be a national champion in a context like that? The head of the NCAA says there's not going to be any NCAA champions for the fall sports, but the college football national championship isn't actually determined by the NCAA. The College Football Playoff Selection Committee is independent of that. It's owned by a variety of people, including ESPN. So they, they're moving ahead. And they're meeting and they're putting out tweets and making plans. They've got their whole process in place. So what we're going to do is grade three ways of solving this problem, of figuring out a national champion or the conundrum of could there be a national champion in this context. All right. So, Dave, give me your grades for each of these as we work our way through them. Number one, just give the playoff champion the title. Um, So we're going to have SEC, ACC, Big 12, leaving out the Pac-10, the Big 10 – sorry, the Pac-12 and the Big 10 – We can pretty much, if we want to imagine that Ohio State lost in the semifinals, Pac-12 champion won't be good enough anyway, and it's going to come down as it always does to Alabama and Clemson, so why do we need the other two conferences? What do you think about that one, Dave?
1: Because you never know until you play the game. I'm going to give that one uh, an F. Uh, <laughs> Ohio State actually may be pretty good this year. So yeah, you're right. It may be that once in a decade where they actually built a uh, beat uh, Clemson uh, or Alabama. So yeah, I I don't like that uh, as as a solution. Uh, I think that it. Um, I just I, I I wonder why these these conferences the the Power Five couldn't work together. Uh, to come up with a season where they played, even if that meant spring. So I, uh, that one's an F if you if you have uh, three going forward and two aren't there. Uh, yeah. I don't like that solution.
0: Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah, I, I'm going to give that a D. I don't, I don't think it's very good either. I think yeah, it just seems sort of silly to raise a championship trophy and and know that two of the major conferences that are you know viable contenders for this and some of the teams that no doubt were expected to be very, very good didn't even compete. All right. Second option split national champions. So you've got your three conferences that do the fall football. Then in the spring, you've got like a, you know, Rose Bowl two, where, you know, true champion of the Pac-12 against the Big Ten champion. You actually have it when roses are really in bloom in most parts of the country. So that's something. Um, And the only difficulty here is the Rose Bowl is actually part of the college football playoffs. So I'm not sure. Yeah, you may need a new name for this, some other flower or something like that to make this work. But but leaving that aside, you've got one national champion for the fall, one for the spring, and it's just like the old days, you know, the 90s, the 80s where we got to debate who was the real champion and we never knew because they never played it on the field.
1: I actually like this. I you know, I think that you know, before you had uh, an NFL, you had an AFC and an NFC, right, you had different champions there. Uh, you'll have, a, I believe, a, a playoff uh, in the fall. I, and I think that uh, they ought to do something similar uh, in the spring. Uh, yeah, maybe you know, they, they do semis and then a, a final game in the fall and do this, a similar thing in the spring. And, and then, yeah, a co-champion. Uh, the, this, uh, this team won the fall. This team won the spring and, and, and go from there. Uh, so I, I'd give that uh, – it's not, not an A because it's not ideal, but I'd give it a, a, a solid B anyway as a, as a resolution.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's good for the t-shirt manufacturers. It's, you know, kind of keeps the debate going. All right. The last, the last option here we're going to throw out is to make the conference championships, basically the big piece of hardware. So you play your conference schedule, they're all playing these intra conference schedules. And then you have like an NCAA basketball style tournament where the top six or eight teams or whatever from each conference play. And so, you know, you have a chance to have a regular season champion tournament champion and that's the big trophy there's no attempt to try to figure out a, a national champion we got five conference champions and they all celebrate that they're at the top of the heap at least for their conference that year
1: yeah kind of boring um I, you, you could do it I, I i just i can't see the excitement uh, i of course you know uh you know uh, ohio state michigan game in the spring is still going to be ohio state michigan game and perhaps for the big 10 championship there'd, there'd be something there um but yeah, you know, Overall, I mean, uh, college football has become a national sport, so to turn it back into kind of a conference-level uh, championship, I think, would be a, a little anticlimactic. So I'm, I'm going to give that one a C-. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to grade that one low also because it just doesn't I – mean, there's nothing new about it, right? You play your conference schedule, and then you play off within the conference, and so we're just having rematches of the same teams that have already played. All right, well, we'll see how they work it out, uh, all this TBD. Uh, it seems like there's more moves to be made before this is all settled, but uh, we'll see if, if anyone plays college football in the fall. In the end, they've got about a month and a half to figure it out in these conferences that are trying to play, and so perhaps they can they can pull it off. That would be at least be entertaining for us to have college football year-round. That would be something for the fans. Let's give that at least a an A for the fan of college football who gets to watch a fall season and a spring season perhaps as well. Well, we always close the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And last week, we predicted the result of Ilhan Omar's congressional primary against her fellow progressive Democrat, Anton Melton Moe. Now, Dave, you predicted she would win by 10 points, which is pretty good. I said 18, however, which means I think for the first time in 12 episodes, we actually have a correct prediction. 18-point spread. It actually was an 18-point spread. So on the other hand, we'd also predicted the vice presidential choice. I had said Susan Rice. You said Elizabeth Warren. Obviously we got that wrong. So that's more in keeping with our normal predictions. This week, we're going to have a little bit of fun with the convention coming up. As I said, next week, we're going to spend the whole show on the convention. The next two weeks, we'll do the democratic convention, the Republican convention, but we're going to have a little bit of fun with the speeches coming up. So you got two hours of primetime speeches, nine o'clock to 11 o'clock Eastern. This is where you're, Time zone advantage really kicks in, Dave, because um, I'm going to be up past my bedtime four nights in a row trying to keep up with these speeches. Meanwhile, you know, you can have your cocktail, your dinner, your after dinner port, you know, whatever you're doing out there on the left coast. Eight o'clock, it's all done. You still got a little time for an evening. Got to
1: say, I'm jealous. I have the evening to have to think about what was actually said, which you know may not may be disturbing as well. So there's there's that element, but it's not it's not right before bed. So what it won't won't create nightmares or hopefully. I know. not. I'm, I'm wondering if I'll be able to fall asleep after <laughs> after exactly. all this. Exactly. But yeah, no, I I, I think it's uh it's a, I always like conventions. I just kind of the political part of me growing up. I always thought they were neat, Republican, Democratic to to see people speak. It's gonna be weird though without any crowd. That's that's always the fun part about it seeing people yeah. respond to the speeches. So
0: the, the crazy hats and the, yes, exactly. the enthusiasm and the chants and all the rest. Yeah, it's it's gonna be wild. and it, and to see how the speakers respond to that when, you know, when you have the applause line, there's no applause. What do you do? And do you write a different speech because you know, there's no audience to hit those applause lines, the kind of cadence that you normally use with a teleprompted speech with applause lines and a crowd. Just a totally different experience. So we'll, we'll see how they adjust to that.
1: It's like teaching an eight o'clock class on a Tuesday, Thursday. All right. On no Zoom. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So what we're gonna do is make a prediction for each night. We got we got one speaker each night. We're gonna have a, a question related to that, and we'll see how we do. Uh, join along. Right? This is a great opportunity. This would be a good Instagram thing. You know, you wanna you wanna join along. You've got make your predictions. Join with us and see how we all do. So Monday night, Michelle Obama is giving the keynote address, and you know, back in the days when President Obama was speaking State of the Union addresses, one of the things you always would notice was just how many times he would use first-person singular pronouns. Right? He likes to talk about himself. And so you know, most narcissists marry people that kind of fuel that a little bit. So the question I have for you, Dave, is, how many times does Michelle Obama mention Barack Obama? In her keynote address, presumably in support of Joe
1: Biden, I would say every other paragraph of her speech. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I'm going early and, and often. Early and um, often. All right. There'll be a lot of he's and we's.
0: Right. Yeah, okay. So,
1: yeah. Okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna
0: say five times because I'm a number person, and I think sounds like you're saying at least that. But
1: I'm. Sa- I, I'll say at least a dozen then. I'll keep okay, it. A so, dozen. Yeah. All
0: right. All right. Very good. All right. So now that's Monday night. Now, Tuesday night features Dr. Jill Biden and Bill Clinton. And, and I think Clinton's a very interesting figure here because of course he's one of those guys that just you know, made his political career on the convention speech and knows how to deal with the crowd. So, but in recent years, he's, he's somewhat in a precarious position with the woke democratic party. And so my question to you is Dr. David Corbyn, will he directly or implicitly apologize for any of his past actions or policies welfare reform policing sexual harassment he's got a pretty good list of things he could apologize for any of those you think he'll he'll bring up and at
1: least give a nod to where the party is today never never <laughs> no, never not in our lifetime it'll never happen so just yeah, I, not not part of his makeup
0: I, I agree he brazens it out all the way to the end um but no i i think there's no apologies i think bill clinton goes on being bill clinton yes. right to the end yes all right wednesday night lot of heavy hitters we've got barack obama hillary clinton elizabeth warren nancy pelosi and of course kamala harris's vice presidential acceptance speech now the narrative so far from the media has been how well she's doing as a tack dog going after Trump in ways that, that maybe Biden wouldn't want to do or hasn't, hasn't done and the success she's having with that. So my question for you then is how many times does she mention Trump by name and does she ever call him president Trump?
1: I think uh, also a dozen uh, uh, references uh, to the president never uh, with uh, with his title president. So um, not one President Trump, but uh, many, many references uh, to the current office holder.
0: Okay. I, I was going to say 10 Trumps, and I agree with you. None of them preceded by the word president. Okay. Now, we come to the main event, Thursday night, the Biden acceptance speech. He's been waiting a long time for this, right? We I mean, think about it. The first time he ran for president, he ran against Bush. That's George H.W. Bush, 1988. So he's got it, though. He's got the nomination, uh, 32 years in the making. But they don't seem super eager to give him a lot of camera time. You may have noticed not a lot of camera time for Joe Biden at this point. So I got two questions for you. Number one, quick question, how long will the acceptance speech be? I'm not counting the introductory video or – you know the family thing at the end, the speech itself from start to finish. How long is the
1: speech? Twenty-two minutes, perhaps a record uh, for how short uh, it short. is. I don't know. We've heard that what, Truman was twenty-six minutes, so yeah. And I'm saying less than twenty-six minutes. Less than twenty-six. I'm not,
0: I'm going to go shorter still. So I'm going to say it's going to be fifteen minutes. I'm going to say there's going to be a long video, so you're going to think that it's the speech, but it's not the speech. And then there's going to be a lot of stuff at the end. And so he's going to be up there for like a half hour, 35 minutes, whatever, wherever there is. But you're going to look at it and you're going to say, wait a second, he barely spoke at all. That was 15 minutes. I'm going to say 15 minutes, maybe less. All right, now last, last question. Imagine you're playing acceptance speech bingo and you want to construct the perfect board to guarantee your bingo. We all know you got that star space in the middle. So you need four you need four X's in order to get your bingo. I want four words you would love to see lined up on your bingo board to guarantee you win acceptance speech bingo next Thursday night. Build
1: back better and unite.
0: And they're unite. they're right.
1: simple. You can say them over and over again, even within 22 minutes build back better unite
0: i'm a little disappointed you didn't go with a fourth b but that's okay barack no okay all right so so I, that's good I, I like those i like those choices i was gonna say no articles or helping birds we he didn't go there so that's fine all right here's my four literally literally good. famous abuser of that word decency obviously describing himself incompetent obviously describing the president and then man in the sense of, come on, man, which well, seems to be his, yeah. his favorite reply to a reporter who gives him a question he doesn't like.
1: Yeah, that malarkey, right? He likes that. Malarkey, well. yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah so, malarkey might work in there too. That's, that's not a bad fifth word. All right, well, we'll see how we do on that. I think our, our predictions are pretty similar. So there may not be a clear-cut winner, but I'm looking forward to the bingo especially and seeing how we do. I have a feeling we might both get bingo on that Thursday night if the speech isn't too
1: short. We'll have, to, we'll have to count how many we get of Build Back Better and Unite and, and, and yours. So. Yeah, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, that's all we've got for this week's show. Thanks, as
0: always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and to review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and to follow us on Instagram at Democracy in America today. We look forward to being back with you again next week.